what are the things we've been taught to believe on how, you know, workplaces work or how corporate America works? And, you know, why do we agree to those things? Why do we agree that we have to have, be in competition? Why do we agree about scarcity, that there's one seat at the table? Why do we agree that, you know, the winner eat all or that sort of mentality is what we want to reward? Uh, those values are broken. And that's what, that's what I think you and I are talking about. Like we're in a moment of reckoning around our values. Everyone thinks you badge through, like when we used to go to the office, you badge through your turnstiles and then we're all like the same workers starting from the same place and we're not. Hey everyone, I'm Claude Silver and I am an emotional optimist. For me, there's absolutely no false or toxic positivity in emotional optimism. It is simply an awareness that we have the capacity to influence how we feel and how we think. And that even in our darkest times, we know that the light is actually always there. So join me as I ask each and every one of my guests what emotional optimism means to them. Well, it's wonderful to have you here, Deepa. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Excited to be here. Yay. I'd like to always start with um, with a question, same question uh, pretty much every time with my guests, which is origin story and really who who were you at five years old, six mm-hmm. years old, eight years old? Who who was uh, little Deepa? Yeah, you know, little Deepa in some ways was very clear on who she was. I'll say that from the beginning and in other ways, I think had no idea. So, you know, my origin stories, my parents were immigrants to this country. They came from India in the late 60s. I was born here, um, but we grew up in a very small farming town in New Jersey. Um, and I mean, literally across the street from cornfields, like that kind of one stoplight kind of town. We had no, you know, getting McDonald's, I think 15 years ago was like, you know, life changing for the kids in the town. So a very small town. And I say that because it was a very white town. And so for me, there was a lot of question around identity. I was one of maybe five students of color in my school growing up. My mother and my sister were very light skinned and my father and I are darker skinned. And so even just questions of like, where are you all from? And why do your parents look different, you know, look different than each other? Just a lot of confusion around that. And so for me, and we didn't talk about race at, at home. So I should also share that. So there was a sense of if you just work hard, everything will be okay. You know, and um, I think which happens with a lot of the immigrant women that I interview. But as a result, I think there was a lot of confusion. Like my life feels different. We eat different food. We, you know, speak a different language. Um, you know, everything at home is different. And yet, I don't understand why we never talked about it. So there was a lot of confusion. So not a sense of feeling like I belonged growing up and then also not feeling like I belonged. We spent summers in India and I was very American when we went there. So the sense of not belonging anywhere. Mm-hmm. And then I'd also share, I was the only girl on the boys soccer team, probably all the way through high school. And so there was also a sense of, I could, you know, bury or break. I could do anything. My father, you know, probably wanted a boy to be honest with you, but got two girls and I'm the oldest. And so there was a little, like, if I had a boy, you know, he would do this or he would do that. And that, that used to like motivate me or fire me up to prove him wrong. So a lot of, you know, I can do anything I want and I'll show you, I'll prove you was there from maybe like three and four years old. So that hasn't gone away. That's amazing. (laughs) It's amazing. And it's so interesting that you bring this up that race wasn't talked about in your home. I too have also heard a lot of that more around race, but also religion. Yes. And the, the hard, I'm doing air quotes, but the hard conversations, right? The or the, the things that you should talk about. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and this is very, very different, but growing up 
Jewish, mm-hmm. we moved from New York City, Manhattan, mm-hmm. to Santa Fe, New Mexico, mm-hmm. when I was 12. My brother was 10, maybe going on 11. And at that time, this is early, early 80s, I would say the majority of the population was probably Native American, mm-hmm. Mexican, um, white, of course. And uh, and that was it. I mean, we came from the melting pot of New York City. Mm-hmm. But really hard to find someone that at least said they were Jewish. There were Jewish people. Yep. But to actually proclaim their, their Judaism was... Yeah. Very strange after coming from New York, where the yeah. cultural Judaism, I think, like reigns supreme. And so my friends all had Christmas trees and they celebrated Christmas. I desperately, desperately mm-hmm. wanted. Same here. Same here. We, I wanted a Christmas. We're yeah. Hindu. I wanted a Christmas tree. <laughs> desperately. And my we didn't, we didn't talk about, I mean, we talked about, well, we're Jewish, but that's not talking about it. Mm-hmm. And to this day, as I now have children, I, I certainly am, we're bringing them up uh, in the Jewish religion and they can do whatever they like afterwards, yeah. for sure. But but also there is there are Christmas elements here. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want them to feel like you and I have just talked yeah. about so other. Yeah. You know, we're already two, we're already, you know, they, they have two moms. So that's yeah. already going to be a whole thing. And a different I, other. Yes. Yeah, no, I understand. Donors yeah. and all that. So let's try to at least. Yeah. A little bit. No, I, I love that you shared that story. You know, I think Christmas is a great example. Like we, you know, we were Hindu, but my, we didn't celebrate anything. And so there was a little bit of religion is such a big deal in India. And part of why I think my father wanted to immigrate was to not have the sense of you had to do something. And so there was a little bit of rebellion in him as well. So I didn't grow, I mean, even though we were Hindu and my mother, you know, we had a prayer room, my mother had that side. We didn't really talk about religion a lot either. And so when I did want the Christmas tree, I remember the conversation that you can't have it and not really understanding why, or there was to your point, like no, no understanding of, of why. And, and so there was a lot of just yes and no's and a lot of gray area as a result growing up in question. And to be honest with you, just to cut to the chase in the end, I think I thought a lot of it was me, right? Like what's different about me and why am I? not enough without understanding some of these questions are bigger and have nothing to do with me as little Deepa. Yeah. So true. And, and, and honestly, I can remember probably when the internet started Mm -hmm. literally researching the origin of Christmas trees. Mm -hmm. Like it was that personal to me. Yes. And finding out that, you know, whether or not it's a pagan tradition or it started in Germany or whatever, it had nothing to do with Claude. Yes. Yeah, you know, I totally get it. I, I totally get it. Um, it's funny. My my, I don't have children. My sister has children, and my parents put up a Christmas tree for the grandkids, and I'm I'm beside myself because it's like that's fine now, but why couldn't we have one when I was a little girl? I know it's so funny, but it, I mean, it's funny. We're laughing about it now, but it but it obviously um, left yeah. its mark totally in some way, shape, or form, and yeah, and so I would love to know. Like how you, what do you do? Yes. So I, yeah, I was a corporate executive for 20 years. I was a partner at Deloitte. I was the first Indian female uh, that made partner. And so I share that in that, and I made partner really young. And so I share that all in kind of, again, boundary breaking, identity, you know, defining, taking a lot of stages and talking about being different and not necessarily seeing role models that look like me. I left in the early stages of COVID after 21 years at the same company to, um, I didn't know at the time, but I, 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 it was a combination of getting sick and a great, or 
bigger question around purpose. I think the last few elections had really kind of raised my, my questions on what do I want to do in my life and my background. I'd gone to grad school for policy and politics, and that's where I'd started. And then I wanted a year or two of private sector experience 21 years later, you know, I'm still in corporate. And so I left um, during early stages of COVID before everyone was leaving. Or when people told me I was I was losing my mind to leave the security that I was in, but I just felt done. And so I walked away, you know, at the height of my career, because I still had 20 years in front of me and the partnership model, you actually are rewarded, you know, for staying longer. And so it didn't really make sense to a lot of people. And I just walked out without clarity exactly on what I was going to do. Six weeks later, I sold my book. I, I left two weeks before George Floyd's murder. So writing kind of in that window when race wasn't even really fully talked about, I knew I wanted to do more to focus on women of color and and I'll share why. Um, And so I left and I wrote a book and I started a company focused on uh, creating community and really helping women of color advance. Um, And so that is all of my work. Now, the book I wrote is also on women of color. And I interviewed over 500 women of color to write the book. And now in the last few years, I've met thousands. And it really started with my own story of wanting to leave, of knowing I was done. I was in a very high pressure, high intense job, three cities a week sometimes, really burnt out, really getting sick. And yet, because I was a first, I felt like I had to stay. All eyes were on me in a hundred thousand person organization. People knew me by, by my first name. And so I felt like my leaving would not only reflect badly on me, but would signal to other women of color or other women that, you know, you should opt out or you can't do it or it's too hard. And so I sat in the seat three years longer than I thought I would. And in an attempt to figure out, like, why am I still here? What can I do? And how can I leave this? I started meeting with women of color just to figure out, like, what else do I want to do? I knew I wanted to get back into kind of this impact space. And I started to see patterns. And my now business partner and I ended up doing about a dozen dinners across the country. Again, just networking to figure out, like, what do I want to do with my life? She was my coach at the time. And we would get into these rooms, I thought, for an hour or two of networking. Six, seven, eight hours later, we would still be sitting around the table, you know, sometimes two or three o'clock in the morning, drinking wine. Eating chocolate, talking about the challenges we faced, and that's why the book is called "The First If You, the Only." In these, you know, in these spaces where we were onlys navigating and having to figure it out, and there were such shared stories around microaggressions, around racism, around just feeling like you didn't belong, and othering, and all of the rest of it that we could finish each other's sentences, and there was such magic in those rooms that I realized I want to talk about that. I want to unpack that. Um, And I realized for myself, I was sitting in the seat because I felt responsible, as did a lot of the other women in the room. And so it was like the beginning of, I think, really trying to unpack what are the things I believe for myself? What have I been taught? And what do I really want to shed? Because it doesn't really work for me. And then how do I teach other women that as well? Wow. That's so, that is so powerful. I think the the feeling I got when you said, you know, I stayed in this job mm-hmm. three years longer or everyone knew me in a hundred person, a hundred thousand person company, mm-hmm. the pressure mm-hmm. that you may or may not have felt, you know, um, um, unconsciously or consciously, you know, our yeah. body feels everything. Yes. Yes. Really. Like I felt that immediately yeah. with that, that might've even an inkling of it might've felt like, yeah, I, I would love to talk about the paradigm today and have you noticed it's it's been we're coming up on two years since the murder of George Floyd mm-hmm. and your book and have you noticed a paradigm shift or more conversations happening around I would say around women women of color first gen for sure in the yeah. working world 
I have, you know, I, and by the way, it's interesting. I wrote all everything I'm doing is focused on women of color, but I am finding it applies to so many people. Right. And the book is really questioning in some ways. It's a critique of capitalism. It's a critique of our, you know, how we work. I mean, I lived to work. That was kind of the, the model I was in. And I think right now I'm coming out of COVID. Everyone is asking themselves this question of like, what is the space I want work to take in my life? You know, we, we quickly talked about your title. Like, how do we do more fulfilling work? How do we, you know, how do we do things that we care about and we love? And so that's really the themes of the book. And so again, I just want to say, although, you know, my work is focused on women of color, so many in particular white male leaders picking up the book and saying this also, you know, reflects me. And I'm asking myself these questions, which I didn't expect, by the way. So I'm surprised. So to answer your question, I've been really humbled. I, you know, when I said I wanted to write this book, there was a little bit of, you know, it's a small market, you know, it's a very niche. You will see how it goes. I sold it to a traditional business imprint. Um, I really wanted it to be kind of, you know, a business book because I think we need more business books written by more voices. You know, a lot of our thought leaders are white men and I wanted to expand how we define leadership. And I'm surprised. I've probably been in maybe 100 companies in just the last six weeks because people want to have this conversation. And I'm not sanitizing my discussion. I get on stages or on Zoom and I say things like, I don't believe corporate America is a meritocracy and we need to talk about it. And I feel like when if I had said that two years ago, I might have gotten shock and awe and maybe pushed off stage. And people are, are really open to the conversation. So I don't think we've solved everything, but I feel like there's more of a willingness to understand and more white, white male leaders are picking up the book saying, I know something is different for, you know, different groups. And I don't know, I don't feel safe asking because I'm also being taught, like I need to go do my own work. And so books like this help me understand. So it's actually, I'm really optimistic. I'm really hopeful. I I was afraid when I wrote the book and talked to this many women, it's a, it's a hard book. There's a lot of really heavy stories, but I'm walking away totally optimistic and totally excited that it's going to take us some time to change it. But I feel like there's a real desire to make work work for everybody. And we're really trying to unpack what that means and and what that looks like. I love that energy. Love that. And to make work work for everybody. And I think also to remind ourselves, especially, and this this is a fairly entitled thing to say, I want to acknowledge that, but it is life work. It's mm-hmm. not work life. Yes. And we got that mixed up somewhere. Yes. <laughs> yes. In this country in particular. Yes. Yeah. And so many of the women of color I interviewed, and again, applies to everybody, but in particular, so immigrant women or black women who've been taught, you know, like you asked me some question, they have to work two or three times as hard to get just, you know, get recognized or get their seat at the table. There is a real overworking and an overperforming and a real deep sense of security that is ingrained to so many of the women I interviewed that is just there and they don't even realize it. So so the, 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 you know, I live to work. I tell a story in the book where I was at my 14th doctor, you know, and I pulled my suitcase in because I traveled three cities a week, right? So she's a doctor I saw when I traveled. So you can imagine this is my fourth or fifth time seeing her. And she's side-eyeing me because I'm literally with my rolly board in her office. And she spread all the, you know, reports across her desk. And she said, I know something is definitely wrong with you, but it's a lot of small things I can't find. She called it the smoking gun. And she said to me, you know, looking straight at me, I want to ask you three questions. I think your job is killing you literally just said it as a doctor. What would you do if you didn't do this job? Two, do you have to do a big job like this to feel worthy? And three, don't you just see that you're worthy being you? And I have to tell you, I got, I literally almost started crying. All I wanted to do was get out of that room because she had seen through me. Like I lived to work that, that typical Indian immigrant, 
you know, it was all about external accolades and success. And that's how, you know, a lot of us are measured. And I hadn't really figured that out. And so, you know, I left that, that I went back to my hotel room and cried for like four hours and then, you know, decided my life had to change. But it was one of those moments where, yeah, I don't think enough of us are asking us ourselves those questions. And I'll just say, and then I'll, I'll pause because there's a lot there. Two out of three of the women I interviewed are sick physically with the physical manifestations. So skin rashes, headaches, adrenal fatigue, fertility issues. There's a list of about 12 things. And I think it happens as a result of the stress and not being seen and the conforming, performing behavior we have. So yeah, it's very much tied to, to what you're, you're talking about. The chills I got mm-hmm. uh, when you, when you mentioned the three questions and, mm-hmm. and oh, thank God for her. Mm-hmm. For all, fantastic. And then for you relaying that message and in your own words now doing the work uh, that you do, I want to get into, um, I want to get into how do you know, uh, how do you know when you're in a culture, a corporate, we'll just call it corporate culture mm-hmm. or organization that potentially is toxic and or is killing you. Uh, and before we do that, I want to mention, because rightly so, you're speaking to everyone. You're not just mm-hmm. to uh, people of color. It's ev- it's everyone. Mm-hmm. And because it is prevalent everywhere. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I had a conversation with a young, uh, young, younger than me, a young gentleman about six months ago. He had just started uh, at Vayner. In a brand new role, there wasn't a job description necessarily, right? And he said to me, probably in within his third week, I want to provide value. I want to provide value. I want to provide value. How can I provide value? Who do you think I... And I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. Okay. First of all, you're providing value by being here. Mm-hmm. Second of all, who do you need to prove Mm-hmm. that you are worthy of this job. You got mm-hmm. the job. We spent a lot of time interviewing mm-hmm. you, leadership job, leadership role. And lo and behold, it comes out that he was adopted mm-hmm. and he really feels as though he was adopted to, to immigrants mm-hmm. and really felt as though he needed to make his mark for his family to be proud. Yeah. And when I tell you that we were in tears, this is on Zoom, we were both in tears because just hearing the pressure that he had and then saying to him, like, first and foremost, you're going on a listening tour. This is for 30 days, listen and learn, take it in, but know that who you are is valuable to us. You belong here. You're worthy to be here. You've arrived. And it just, again, gives me chills, but it doesn't, um, this type of pressure um, doesn't discriminate, does it? Correct. Correct. No, absolutely. I, I feel like that we should write those four things down as mantras for everybody. Or if you're listening, like those are the, right. I mean, so many of the women I met, the, the message they are trying to correct or trying to rewrite is that they are worthy. And for whatever reason, you know, again, I think a lot of it for women of color comes from not being seen and heard, not seeing role models that look like you. I never saw myself on television. I never had a teacher that looked like me. So I just always felt invisible, right? And you don't even know what you can become. And so I think that's a lot of, I, I, I've done the research on why I think it happens to women of color in particular in this country, but um, I think it's there for everybody. And so much of this work is really about defining for yourself, like, 
like, what is power? What is leadership? And what is success? I mean, so many of the women that I speak with are chasing their parents' definition of success. And what is it for you? You know, I sometimes share a story when I decided to leave Deloitte, I, I wrote on LinkedIn, like my goodbye and explained I was leaving. I had hundreds and hundreds of people reach, uh, men and women, but a lot of Asian men in particular reach out to me and say, what did you tell your parents when you left your job? Like, were they okay with you leaving? And I'm thinking, I'm 40. Like, I can leave. I don't owe my parents an explanation. But I got what they were asking because for a lot of people, that's really there, even at that age, even at that stage of life. And so, yes, I think think it's prevalent. I think, you know, what I tell uh, the women I work with is that you have to trust your body. I think part of what is also broken in in our culture is we have been taught to lead with our heads, right? And what we think. And yet a lot of wisdom resides in our bodies and getting sick. And and what it's taught me is that I was ignoring what my body was telling me. I'd been sick for a long time. I had migraines since I was 15, you know, and I just ignored the symptoms that kept mounting and mounting and mounting. And so I think some of this is really just listening better. And you know, when a situation is workable and when a situation is not, but the difference is so many of us have been taught to stay. Women of color in particular are taught to be grateful for the opportunity. And what we need to change is it's okay to walk away from something that doesn't work for me, you know, work for you, or um, again, I say not made for you or made, made by us or for us, but we need to like really ask different questions. And if you're if your managers don't stand up for you, if your supervisor isn't, you know, speaking up for you, if it's not a culture where you're learning and growing, and I list like six or 10 things in the book, but if it's not those things, it's okay to pick your head up, especially right now, because it's a talent market. Go have some inter- interviews, go figure out if there are other cultures, go meet with other people, reach out to other people, even over the social platforms and just ask, what's it like to work there at this level? Mm-hmm. And you'll, you'll start to realize and you'll start to know it's not a, once you ask, it's not a hard, it's not a hard <laughs> question, but you just have to ask. You have to ask, and to your point, authentically ask and authentically listen. Yes. Because as we know, it's so easy to ignore the symptoms, to ignore our inner voices, or to let our inner voices dictate our life, whatever that limiting belief is that you're saying, or that I'm not worthy, or I'm not enough. And it is, you know, I asked you about the paradigm shift earlier, because I too, from where I sit, really do see an opening of change. And I feel the light wind mm-hmm. that's pushing us forward uh, uh, in part because the conversation is shifting and because mm-hmm. the conversation of, um, uh, of DE&I mm-hmm. and equality has, um, the conversation is shifting around DE&I. Uh, uh, women and men are speaking up. Mm-hmm. Uh, non-binary folks mm-hmm. are speaking up is really important to, to obviously use the correct pronouns, all of those things. And then I think about this incredible generation Z. Mm-hmm. And I do believe they are changing this world. I do too. Yeah. With, with, it's uh, not our tutelage, but with someone like yourself stepping up and saying, Hey, I can actually call the shots right now in my own life. Yeah. I think they need, I mean, I do think that that younger generation still needs to see reflections of themselves. Yeah. Like you didn't. Yeah. But I feel it is happening. It is happening. That's right. I I mean, I also think we're in a moment, you know, I often tell people we have to not lose this moment that we're in, you know, COVID, you know, how we work, where we work, all the things, all the questions of the last few years have really opened up an opportunity to do things differently in a way that, 
probably was never there in our in our generation, literally. Like this feels like a once in a lifetime gener- you know, opportunity to change how we work. And you're right. I do think the younger folks that come up behind us have always been asking different questions and see identity in a completely different way. But I often get asked, will it just change with them, you know, on just because the next generation has a different point of view. And as I interviewed some of them for the book, I do believe the view is different, but a lot of them went in thinking, um, I'll just go, you know, and I, so I was talking to early folks early in their 20s and they were saying to me, I just want to get a year or two of experience, similar to what I said, and then I'm going to get out. I'm going to, I, I know it's not a great place. I know, you know, what it's like. And so it's almost an extract and then go elsewhere and do what you love sort of mentality. So I feel like we're in a moment where like both sides have to shift. Like there is a whole different way that people want to work and companies need talent. So we're going to be forced to change. They're going to be forced to change how they work because no one else is going to tolerate the things that we tolerated, that's, you know? Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. Can we talk a little bit about how do you know if you're in a toxic workplace or a workplace that doesn't work for you? We talked a lot about our body symptoms, yeah. our our health. Are there other signals that that might tell us that uh, that you might share? Yeah, I mean, I think it's watching the tea leaves a little bit too. So what's happening to the other, you know, folks who look like you? So whether you're a person of color, woman of color, you know, if you identify in a different way, just like what's happening to, to folks that you really respect or that you feel like you belong with, you know, are they advancing in the same sorts of ways? It's, you know, I think we're in a moment where there's a lot more data than there ever was. So look at the C-suite, look at the, you know, top levels and are they diverse or is it kind of lip service? Look mm-hmm. at the policies that the company has and the HR policy. So what happens when people report? Like, do those cases get taken seriously? Um, there are very different degrees to which companies are, you know, uh, woke or, or toxic or not. And I think some of those things, and, and also what other people are saying, like you can go to things like Glassdoor or other review places and just read how people are talking about the company. And so again, I think it's a little bit of like really getting educated on what's happening and asking different questions. We mostly feel like we belong or don't belong based on the activities of our peers and mostly our manager, our direct manager. So although like the CEO or the you know C-suite is important, it's really our manager that makes us feel like all the data suggests that. So if you feel like the person is blocking you or not listening to you, you feel like you're spoken over, if you feel like you're not, you were promised a, you know, a promotion hasn't come three times. Like, I I think you have to trust that and ask different questions. You know, I think it's okay if something doesn't happen the first time and you get feedback that's helpful to try and and work and make it better. But a lot of the women I work with don't get feedback that's actionable. So it's like, it's not going to happen for you this year, may happen in one or two years, but there's no feedback. If there's no feedback, how can you... Or how are you sure you're going to get it the next time? So I don't know that people can leave every situation. That's the other part. Like we're not all, to your point of privilege, we're not in situations where we can all get up and leave. But I want us to really ask different questions so we don't feel stuck. Like that's really what worries me more is that, you know, we're sitting in situations where we feel stuck Mm -hmm. and not asking enough of the questions to understand if a situation is toxic. You know, I I love the question also because we... um, uh, one of the women I work with and I just authored a piece uh, in HBR last week. It was called Toxic Rock Stars and it went viral. It literally has gone viral. We, we heard the feedback from HBR um, and the, the piece talks about how, you know, for a lot of the women we I interviewed in particular for the book, that it was usually one person that made their, their work situation intolerable. And in a lot of cases, that person is someone who put big numbers up. So a really, you know, big producer, but is toxic to culture. And so for me, like one of the big things I'm starting to talk about is the fact that 
how how is the person who is egregious like what it, what are they getting? It's usually a white man, unfortunately. So how how is what is he getting away with? And what are what is a company tolerating? For me, is a big sign on whether or not a company is toxic. And if they actually stand up for their values, that's really what we're talking about. You know, like does a company stand up for what they believe in and what they are talking about? Um, that's really what I think we have to really start to unpack in, in deciding if we're going to spend our lives at a company or a place or you know any anything more than a few months. I, I really want us to ask different question. I love, I love everything you said. And it's, it's, it's very impactful. I mean, love meaning like I could, I relate to it. I don't yeah. um, so many things I want to share and, and, and remark on toxic rock stars. Mm-hmm. I I'm in love with this phrase. The, the way I look at this sometimes is, and I'll ask audiences this, can a high performer be a bully? Can a bully be a high performer, mm-hmm. which is toxic rock stars? It's exactly both. Yes. Yeah. And is that organization going to allow that? So in my book, and if, if, Claude, if Claude wrote the book and she had the Claude company, um, high performers are not bullies. That, that, that's yes. those, they don't belong in the same sentence. Exactly. That's the problem. problem. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and that is the problem so That's many times. And you can't be a rock star if you are bad for the company or if you act badly. That's the whole point. That's and yet true. we treat those people because we, we at the end of the day, like one of the things that we talked about, uh, we put out a report with Billie Jean King in the fall, my company, Information. And one of the things we talked about is that we tend to reward these toxic rock stars, you know, in very different ways. And what we're actually signaling is that performance trumps character. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is really not what I think, I mean, to your point of is business being redone right now? Like a lot of us are asking, like, what is the character of the company? What is it? What what are the values of the company? What does it stand for? The next generation, to your point, is asking those questions. They're buying from companies that represent that. Yeah. So that's really, it's a values conversation. Mm-hmm. And we're really basically asking, which is really what I'm, I'm, I, I call them delusions. Like, what are the things we've been taught to believe on how, you know, workplaces work or how corporate America works? And, you know, why do we agree to those things? Why do we agree that we have to have, be in competition? Why do we agree about scarcity, that there's one seat at the table? Why do we agree that, you know, the winner eat all or that sort of mentality is what we want to reward? Uh, those values are broken. And that's what, that's what I think you and I are talking about. Like we're in a moment of reckoning around our values, you yes. know, as these companies. The delusion, the delusionality, I don't know if that's mm-hmm. the right word, but <laughs> I think the the acceptance that I should be really happy to have this job. Yes. Yes. And no matter who you are, that I should be happy to have this job. I should not, don't worry about crossing go. Don't worry about telling anyone because this is what I'm supposed to do. I was educated or my parents or this is how I'm going to get my spouse or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> thousand things. It is a delusion. I completely agree with you there. And I also think the, um, you brought up meritocracy within the first Mm -hmm. sentence of this uh, interview. Meritocracy is, I don't think we talk enough about meritocracy. It's a delusion. That's the whole point. Like that's the biggest delusion of the book, right? It's this delusion that the system shows up, you know, um, what's like devoid of values, devoid of, you know, sentiment, devoid of bias. And it doesn't, the system was built with bias. And so understanding that is so important if we're going to change it, you know, we, we're all kind of dancing around the fact that there is, 
it, it was built with this idea that there, I mean, literally the, the capitalist system was built or the corporate system was built with this idea of a two parent household where one person worked outside the home and one stayed home to take care of the kids, usually a woman. Mm-hmm. Um, that is the model that we have been living for, you know, decades now without revisiting it. That's why you saw all these, you know, especially moms like hemorrhaging over the last couple of years because the system itself is broken. We never question like is work like, does it work if both, you know, both people are working outside the home? How do you actually raise children in this model? Like, where, how do we value childcare? You know, all these questions are real questions. All, all these questions are real, real questions. And, and I'm in the workforce. There's 1,600 people that are at um, VaynerX. And while I don't talk to all 1,600 people, my, my job primarily is to take in information from everyone I can and look for patterns and things to uh, highlight, things to change, things to call out and champion. Um, And one of the things you hit on, which I want to talk about uh, because it's been a new awakening for me, is the sense of Within a workplace, are we giving everyone, and I mean everyone, the same type of equity, the same type of equality? Equity and equality are different. We know that. But the same training, the same development. Are we taking into account that Bob didn't come through the world of advertising? He just found himself in advertising. And, you know, Susie came through a legacy of advertising. Um, and then we've got a person of color who just happens to be really creative yeah. and found themselves. I removed the need for college education at Vayner because it, that I thought was just a massive showstopper. Yeah, absolutely. Certainly not going to get us anything other than apples and apples and apples. Yeah. But the awareness that came to me, and it was very humbling, was that you cannot look at every single person the same. And what is it that we need to provide to said person to make sure that they are given the same chance, that it's not three strikes you're out necessarily. It's that was two strikes. What is it that we can provide to you, whether or not it's internal, external training development to give you a really fair shot? Because we, to your point, we expect everyone to be on the same playing field and they just ain't. Yep. No. And we're told we're not. And then of course, people of color, we know are really told they're not. And yep. um, that was very, I have my, my hands just got cold because it was very humbling for me, like mm-hmm. a, a real splash of ice cold water on my face mm-hmm. to have to look at that in a way that, you know, as an empathetic person, I thought I already was taking that into account. I was not taking that into account. I love that. I love that um, that you did that because I think I think that's where we need to go. And a lot of companies aren't willing to make those changes like that because they, they're so using the traditional metrics or the traditional things that we yeah. look at. So many things I want to say. So one is um, we are about to start a campaign. The company. The uh, information that I've, I've helped co-found around placing more women of color in the C-suite on our boards. And one of the things we're trying to rewrite is this idea of what board ready or executive ready means. Like we don't take into account enough of, of lived experience of women of color and the, the voice and the values that they bring to the table. But again, any group, right? My, my focus is women of color, but it could be anything. And as you were talking, I, I have had a few, you know, I'm, I'm picking on the white men category, but white men reach out to me and say, you know, I grew up, I grew up poor. So a lot of the things you're talking about are the 
the same for me. And so, yes, there are, I, th- I think there are a lot of biases. There are a lot of differences. Like every, I have a line in the book where I say, everyone thinks you badge through, like when we used to go to the office, you badge through your turnstiles and then we're all like the same workers starting from the same place. And we're not. It's part of why I use the first language in the title, because as first, many of us are the first in our families to go to college or the first to work outside of the home. I was one of the only women in my extended family to work outside of the home, right? Um, and that's not, that's not, <laughs> that's now, that's not, you know, centuries ago. Right. And so really understanding that as a result of that, I didn't know like what to wear, where to go, like simple, basic things that other people could just go ask their aunt or uncle or their mother that I didn't have that, you know? And so, um, and they're deep, deep stories in the book around some of these things of not like literally not having anyone in your family that has worked in a professional setting. So not understanding certain things or not knowing where to go, you know, yeah. when you don't have that, those questions. And also, I think there's a lot of things we don't understand about our family setups. I mean, you, we brought up Christmas in the beginning, but a lot of the women of color, I, again, women of color that I work with, like there's, th- there's things are expected to do at home, right? Especially for example, I'm going to pick on being Indian Asian women. A lot of the Asian women I spoke with, like their value in their families. So from their parents and their in-laws comes from how they raise their children and what they make for dinner. And there's an expectation that they're doing that work themselves that, that can't be outsourced. And right. so there's different expectations at home that make how we work completely different, you know, and, and identities that are completely different. So I think it's really complicated. And I think that's part of what we're not unpacking that the, the not only getting to the workplace is different for us, but once we're in the workplace, the experience is fundamentally different. And to your point, what, what is it that you need to get, um, to, to feel like you're on, you're on equal footing. Maybe that's really the question that we're asking. And that's going to be different for me than it is different for you than it is for the you know person sitting next to me. So yeah. it's understanding and asking that. It is understanding and asking that and not assuming that I know what equal is for you. Even if you told me, I yes. still can't assume that I got yeah. it, right? Because I'm yep. never going to be you. And and assuming that there's so much assumption is done. Yeah. Um, and I think that's one of the things where you say asking different questions, but also being humble enough and moving yourself out of the picture enough to know that, hey, I don't have the answers here. Yep. I'm learning. I'm going to learn by asking. And I'm going to fall. I'm going to yep. fall down. There is no doubt about it. And we'll have to clean up that mess with, uh, with grace and, and, all, and all the rest. It's such it's such an incredible time though to be doing this work, mm-hmm. to be in a workplace like I am. You know, taking in some of the tidbits that you've told me today, I I can't wait to go back into the workplace in my next meeting, whether whether or not that's today or tomorrow, with some of what you've shared with me, especially around. We all start work, we all start our days differently. Mm-hmm. I've got two kids. You've got four dogs. Mm-hmm. Uh, someone's making breakfast for blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. Someone's working out. Someone's had an argument with their spouse. Mm-hmm. 8,000 things happen differently. But then remembering that once we enter that building, we're still different. Yes, exactly. And different is good. Different is good. Othering yep. that isn't, othering that I don't want to. Yep. Um, um, continue of putting yep. people in those siloed boxes over there or only going to H, um, uh, historically black, um, HSBC, yeah, to, um, uh, to find our candidates. Like that yeah. goes against what I'm even saying. We removed college degrees. Yeah. And people 
are everywhere. Yeah. I also, I would add just one more piece to that, which is also starting to redefine what we think of as leadership or think of the quality or like what the end goal is too. So it's, it's how they, how people come in the door. It's what we do to make sure they have equal footing, but it's also understanding that um, we still are working off a model that leadership that, you know, rising in most companies looks a certain way and starting to open up the aperture so that we're not all trying to conform and create cookie cutters because that's where we also lose our voice. You know, so much of my work is not just putting women of color in senior seats because so many of us, once we get to that seat, we're not in full voice. It's how are we actually leading differently once we're in the seat that I also want us to work on because I think a lot of companies are erring on just, right, advancing people or just... Yeah you know, checking boxes, but they haven't really made space for us to lead differently or to show up or to bring all of what you and I are talking about. That's the hard work. That's really where the magic happens. That's really where we change culture and have innovation and all the things companies want. It's not just, you know, here I have three, you know, diverse candidates at the top level. That's not, that's not what you and I are talking about. We're actually talking about making space for us to show up differently too. Yeah. And the phrase you just used, which I've never heard before is in full voice. Mm-hmm. Or as I would say, you know, authentically, but making space, yeah, you know, being big in the room is actually, and it's something I say quite a bit, it is an entitled thing to say. Yeah. Because not everyone feels big in the room, can can switch that on. What yeah. does that mean? And 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 obviously to uh to people of color, to seen and unseen handicaps, to to all of the diversity, neurodiversity that we're speaking about, but the introvert too. Yeah. But it's, it's being in power. I mean, that that's really what this work is about, is about how, and what feels powerful to you is going to be different than what's powerful to me. But I, I mean, at the end of the day, like I interviewed 500 women of color, some of them, the most senior women of color across our landscape today. And they would say things to me like, I'm sitting in a power seat, but I don't feel powerful because I'm not in full voice or I don't feel authentic. And I, I, I'm challenged with the word authentic just because it, it what does that mean, right? And I, I don't know that's practical to be your full authentic self in all times and all spaces. Mm-hmm. That's not really what I'm focused on, but it's what makes you feel powerful and how do you show up with that power? Because that is full voice. That is, yeah. you know, speaking your truth. That That is whatever, you know, that's kind of what I've come to. But that's the problem that we're having right now is, is to your point, in the room, um, a lot of people don't feel powerful. And as a result, they're not able to change the culture or speak up to what's going to work for them. Yep. And then as we started, then they swallow it. And, mm-hmm. and you get sick and then, you know, you get the burnout, the trauma and you end up yep. leaving. And so yep. it's a yep. vicious cycle. And, you know, we're in a moment where we need more people to stay, but we're also more, more of us are awakening to the disconnects, right? So it's a really fascinating time to, to be asking these questions. It is. I would love to continue this conversation with you. This is, I'm, we're scratching the surface. Yeah, yes, we are. <laughs> so hungry for, um, for this topic and the energy, I think, mm-hmm. that you bring to these topics. It's not just one topic. Um, I'm going to borrow your in full voice. Yes, uh, please. Praise, if you wouldn't mind. Yes. Uh, love it. And um, I just want to thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and your experience with us and so much more. I was trying to think of more eloquent words to say. No, thank you. Thank you so much for having me and for making space for these conversations. I just, I think more of us need to have them, right? Because yeah. the workplace is changing. And so how do we get smarter? How do we get wiser about these conversations if we don't talk about them? So thank you. Agree. Thank you, Deepa. I'll see you next time. Thanks. Definitely. Bye. Bye.